Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran, how are you? I, th- I think this season I don't recall a podcast recorded after both our teams had decent away wins. I think you're absolutely right there. I, I think this could be even more irritatingly cheerful from me than usual. <laughs> We've, we've never beaten Chelsea in the league. In fact, we've only scored once before. So we actually used to score two goals in a single game. was uh, ridiculous. And uh, as for the winner, uh, yeah, pure partridge, the way it hit the back of the net. I, I have to say, though, I actually quite admired your manager in the interview afterwards when asked about that goal. He went, yeah, yeah, it's a good goal. But then he took the rest of the game off. Which is, <laughs> what's, what's the point, he said, of scoring a goal like that and then just basically strolling around like a fancy Dan. Um Interesting though, Kieran, you you tweeted, I think, at the end of that game, almost the most amazing stat I've seen for many a year, certainly since the pod started. Uh, yes, I, I actually tweeted it when it happened, yeah. which is which is a, a tragic indictment of my life. Mm. Um, I think it was uh, yes on about the hour mark. Chelsea made a substitution. And off came Fernandez, the most costly player in the history of the Premier League, Raheem Sterling, Pulisic and Fofana, who together cost £281 million. And on came Yao Felix, Ziyech, Kovacic and Mason Mount, who came from their academy. But the total value, because Yao Felix is, 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 is on loan, but the total value of the players coming off and going onto the pitch at the same time in terms of their most recent transfer fees, £470 million. Pounds. Wow. I mean, that's astonishing. I, I Obviously, I was in a state of mild euphoria for most of yesterday evening, but it did annoy me a little bit that no one asked Frank Lampard if he would happily compare his record with Roy Hodgson's. Both played, <laughs> both played three games. Also, I do owe an apology to Leeds fans, by the way. It, those three Leeds news stories were genuinely news stories that would have been in the pod regardless of what had happened at Ellen Road last week. But I do take on the chin the fact that some Leeds fans thought that I was uh, taking the piss. So is that the, that's the politest way I could put, Kieran. There was no intention of, of, so, <laughs> of so doing. Uh, and my understanding is there are no Southampton questions in this pod. Uh, Kieran, you are, of course, Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. We saw the strange sight this week of a of a, of a Premier League club based just a mile or so from where you are up there in Liverpool University, admitting that they didn't have the money or the inclination to buy that footballer that they were promising to buy for the whole of last season. Yeah, this was a, a very strange... Uh, it was clearly leaked to yeah. the press that uh, Liverpool are not interested in Jude Bellingham. Well, we're, first of all, he's under contract for a few more seasons uh, at anyway, Dortmund. Yeah. Um, he doesn't have a release clause, so therefore it would have to be a negotiated fee. And given his performances this season, um, that's going to be pretty expensive. Um, and then, then Jurgen Klopp came out with some very strange comments about you wouldn't buy a five-year-old a Ferrari for Christmas <laughs> if they wanted a Ferrari. Uh, <laughs> I think in trying to um, sort of placidly or politely sort of say that just because loads of people on social media say sign this player and sign that player, it doesn't necessarily mean that the club's in a position to do so because that would be blowing the whole of the budget yeah. um, on, on on a single signing. But yeah, Bellingham is is a very good player. Yeah, we're 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 straying into the realms of football here. Uh, yeah. um, but uh, football clubs do not have unlimited budgets unless they have backers who can. You know, fund it, and, and Liverpool's Liverpool's owners have made it very clear from the start that the only reason they will provide additional finance is for infrastructure projects, which will then generate income. So, Anfield is going to be increased to sixty one thousand capacity. Um, FSG are quite happy to to provide some funding for that, but in terms of sort of the day to day activities, they're, they're pretty reluctant to to go. Uh, you know, and dip their hands in their pockets in the way that perhaps we would have seen Abramovich do during his his tenure at Chelsea, or we've seen Todd Burley do, uh, only to still get, lose it to Brighton at home. And it's, to bring it back to the world of football finance, so Kieran, 
someone, somewhere, mainly five million Liverpool fans across the world, have got it into their head that the Fenway Sports Group, who own the club, have kind of said they're going to put all their eggs in one basket and Jude Bellingham would be coming to Liverpool in the summer. And it seems, whether that was a false impression, it almost seems to be the straw that's broken the camel's back here for Liverpool fans who suddenly over the weekend have now said that enough is enough, we want these people out. Yes, and I'm not quite sure what what they're looking for because the Liverpool fans that I know and I, you know, and I work in the city, they've been quite adamant. You know, Liverpool is a very proud city in terms of its heritage and roots and all of the local Liverpool fans that I know say, well, you know, we, we're not looking for Middle Eastern investment. We don't want a sugar daddy. We, we are very proud of the history of the club and, and what it stands for in terms of its values. Um, and they feel that that would be compromised by by going for um, a a model of a, of a sugar daddy owner. The non Liverpool fans of Liverpool Football Club appear to be having a slightly more relaxed approach to to that philosophy, though. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of proud, Kieran, and this doesn't often happen. This is actual breaking news. You know, you and I are not averse to a bit of showbiz. Stardust, shall we say, being thrown in our eyes from time to time. I've just had a, a WhatsApp message from Adrian Childs to say wow. that he really to say that he really likes the pod. Uh, uh, that's, Adrian, cool. that's, that's lovely to hear from you, Adrian. I'm, I'm glad you're a fan. And let's let's to get to give it for. I believe it, I believe he owes me a point for the last time Palace played West Brom because uh, we beat them and he went off in a huff. So uh, it's lovely to hear from him. One more news story, Kieran, before we get into questions. Uh, and it's a new story that we have predicted would happen sooner rather than later, but perhaps not quite as soon as it has as it has happened. Well, this is spectacular smoke and mirrors from uh. the Premier League. Um, with a big fanfare, they announced that from the end of the 25-26 season, now to me that means the start of the 26-27 season, if I'm not if I'm not, oh, yeah. I'm not trying to be a smarty yeah, pants there. Um, that there will be a voluntary ban on front-of-shirt deals in relation to gambling sponsors. And people say, well, that, that that's great. Yeah, that's a step in the right direction. Um, and if it is the start of a movement towards detaching the Premier League's relationship with the gambling industry, I think that's great, but it won't be because oh, okay. um, you will be able to have a sleeve sponsor with right. a gambling logo. Um, you will be able to have training kit, presumably, with the front of yeah, with the front of a training uh, shirt with a gambling logo. You will still be able to have perimeter advertising um, from gambling companies, and, and they, they, they tend to be fairly common. And you will still be able to have um, uh, gambling sponsors, but just not front of shirt. So, you know, when we see when we see the players standing in front of those perspex boards in the in the post match interviews, and you got the names of lots of sponsors, well, you can have your gambling name there. So, why has this been done? Well, there there are two white papers um, in circulation. One which has not yet been published is in respect of reform of gambling. Now. The gambling industry has been the most successful stakeholder in football since the creation of the Premier League. The the rise of smartphones, the rise of apps, the ability to to, to bet online and, and you know, not have to traipse to a bookies or even make a phone call has meant that um, that the gambling industry has 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 surfed that particular wave. And we're we're not in favour of prohibition or anything like that. In fact, I. I bet on the match yesterday. Yeah. Um, so you know, I'm. I've, I've got no no issue with that. Um, but when you see the increase in the number of bets that are being placed, and when you see that football has now overtaken horse racing in terms of the sport on which people gamble the most, I think football clearly does have a very close relationship. If we say, well. Surely this is going to help, even in a little way, in terms of gambling harm in this country. I've got to be honest and say it will have zero impact. Right. And the reason for that, we presently have eight sponsors yeah. of Premier League shirts, um, of whom 
seven are non-UK based. We've only got Betway and West Ham. So if you think about the likes of Fun88 and Stake.com and uh, you know the, these other organisations, they 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 tend to be um, based in the Isle of Man. That's where they get their licences from, and they are mainly looking at the Asian gambling market, which which is significant. Um, so it, it's it's a big announcement, but it's small in impact. Um, in terms of the value of the deals, most front of shirt deals in the particular market we're looking at are in the seven to ten million pounds uh, area. So that works out as just over one percent of total Premier League revenues. And people say, well, "Yeah, one percent still one percent." But if gambling companies pull out, they will be replaced by somebody else. Yes, they might not pay quite as much. But the, the total value we're looking at is probably in the region of £60 million. The, the Premier League's income in 2022 compared to 2019, which was the most recent non-COVID uh, impacted year, the Premier League income's gone up by £500 million. So mm-hmm. you know, we're not talking about a financial problem. The big six clubs, they don't care because they've all got global sponsors as opposed to to gambling sponsors, because some of the geographical markets might have local rules in respect of gambling, which which prohibit it. So they they don't tend to particularly work. And then you've got to say, well, who, who is going to replace gambling on the front of shirts? If we end up with crypto companies, we've established here, crypto is gambling with a small g which brings yeah. us to you know the second white paper the premier league richard masters i think it's fair to say took a grilling before the a dcs committee a few weeks ago and for the sake of transparency uh, as we always like to do i'm i'm standing in or sitting in front of that dcs committee um, on tuesday at 11am so if you're if you're not fancying watching jeremy vine's choice of shirt for the day tune into parliament tv and i'll give you a wave um, but I've been asked to talk about the relationship between crypto and NFTs and football, and you know that potentially leading to, to broader issues in terms of sponsorship and gambling and so on. Um, so you know, there it, it's. I think it's a big announcement of practically zero substance. A, a football club could sign, could move from having a non-gambling sponsor and sign up for a deal this summer for a three-year deal with a gambling sponsor, and it will be within the Premier League's new rules. Mm. <clears throat> well done, Kieran, for actually saying Parliament this time, rather than one of your euphemisms where you <laughs> dance around it by saying, I'll be in the Westminster area or the SW1 vicinity, whatever postcode it is. Did your bet yesterday, the Chelsea-Brighton game, involve Chelsea winning at all? It, it did. Ah, shameful, shameful, Kieran. That's the worst aspect of this whole conversation, <laughs> the fact that you do that sort of thing. Just off the t- <clears throat> on the timing of this announcement for the Premier League, is it anything to do, Kieran, with the announcement we spoke about last week coming out of Spain and Italy announcing a, a total ban on uh, gambling sponsorship? Or at the risk of sounding like a stuck record, is it again to do with the white paper on an independent regulator and this is the Premier League saying we can look after our own affairs, thank you very much. Well, I think there's an element of both of those. Um, There were certainly reports in the newspapers a couple of months ago that the Premier League was rowing back in terms of having a voluntary ban. Um, So I think the, the comments from Richard Masters were he was clearly through gritted teeth saying we will work along with DCMS um, with regards to the regulator. And again, I'll just say, say what we've said before, it, it, it will have no impact on the Premier League itself. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's no way that you know the, the, the Taliban are going to go and buy Manchester United. So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a non-issue. Yeah. I, I really hope that whichever MP or cabinet minister is leading the drilling on Tuesday – in which you are involved, listens to this pod, just so they can start by saying, just for the record, Mr. Maguire, you you like to gamble on the opposing team in any game that your your club is involved in, don't you? Yes. Just want to see. I want to see that in hand Kieran. I want to see Mr. Maguire. It says Mr. Maguire squirmed. It says in italics, and then gave an evasive answer. Um, question number one, Kieran, comes from Mark 
Ridley. Uh, you'd be amazed, I think, uh, Kieran, how many times I get asked in perfectly normal pubs, football pubs, <laughs> whether we'd ever considered doing a podcast about the finances of cricket mm. or rugby. And every time I'm asked that question, I'm so stunned by it that basically all I can do is give them the Paddington hard stare, which I do very well. And I just look at them until they go away because just the concept of doing that sort of thing is, is even now I'm starting to get slightly annoyed by the, the fact that people come up to me. But Mark Ridley has an interesting question. And I think this is something people are, or certainly a comparison people like to make as football increasingly dominates everything in British sport. So Mark Ridley says, how do the finances of a county cricket club compare to that of a football club? They both have similar sized squads and have to finance running academy sides. Where, for example, would Surrey's revenue put them in the football finance period? Uh, if you could blow some sort of whistle when you've answered that question, Kieran, just so I could start paying attention again, that would be great. <laughs> well, you might not be aware of this, but producer Guy did approach me uh, a few months ago with regards to the price of cricket. Did he? Uh, he did, well, yes. He, he, well, we've got an issue there, Kieran. He didn't approach me. <laughs> I'd, I'd, well, I'd take up... Who, who was going to host this price of cricket? <laughs> well, I, I I had a brief discussion with the Baroness who... Well, she was going to host it. Out, <laughs> well, she, she she might have had to, um, because know, she did I point know, out... Andy Zoutsman's busy. I can't imagine who else it could be. <laughs> She pointed out that the price of divorce um, <laughs> would, would perhaps be more appropriate, <laughs> given that um, effing football finance uh, takes up uh, far too much of my life, and don't you think for one moment of, of going through and, and doing other sports? Um, so, so I was. Uh, so it, it went. It went no further. Um, but. Uh, yeah, it's, it's certainly a question um, I, I've been asked as well, um, except I've been asked them in, in sort of quinoa dens rather than pubs, as you can imagine. Um, so if we look at the position of Surrey, and I'm also going to look at Durham, just to right. give a bit of contrast here. Um, Surrey's income is around about £45 million a year. Now, that's that's more than a uh, a club in the championship, unless that club is in receipt of parachute payments. Okay. However, however, a significant amount of that income will be in respect of hosting matches for the ECB in, in terms of test matches. Right. Okay. Um, because I thought, well, blimey, I, I was I was quite taken aback, and I said, okay, well, I wonder what the wages are like. And so, okay, on income of forty five million pounds, the wage bill was only seven. So that is similar to probably a club in League One, as opposed to you know much bigger than any club um, in the in the Championship. And of that wage bill of seven million pounds, one point two million went to the directors, oh. um, which I'm, and I'm sure they're doing an absolutely fantastic job. Um, so it's if if you are a test hosting club, then you do get a lot of money, but a lot of that money then goes straight. Back to the ECB because yeah. you're effectively um, you're, you're selling the tickets on behalf of the ECB and, and you 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 won't get very much from that. Um, if we then contrast to Durham, Durham's income was in the region of six million pounds. So you know Durham, I'd say, is is more akin to you know a, you know, a half decent League One team. There'll be one or two clubs in League Two which will be, have a similar level of income. Um, and my understanding is that professional cricketers, I don't think they have twelve month contracts as well. So many of them, oh, you know, will will have contract during the season. And you know, the, the nature of cricket, especially these days, you know, for, you know cause I was watching the IPL matches earlier today. Um, you know, there there is quite a sort of a, a nomadic existence right. for cricketers. And then, of course, you've got many players who are centrally contracted to England as well, which means that they that they rarely, if ever, have the opportunities to play for their nominal counties. It's interesting. I do I do like. I mean, Surrey is my is my team, and as you know, I mean, one of our oldest listeners, as in listening for the longest time, Martin Searle, is involved with Surrey County Cricket Club, and as you know, because you've met him, one of my uh, dearest friends 
has worked at Surrey County Cricket Club for many years in a senior position. And it's interesting to note that uh, it seems that most of their income, or certainly a substantial amount of it, comes from 2020 as well. Mm. Uh, It's those evenings where you pray for long summer evenings. It's like they don't particularly like... The cricket purists are not necessarily fans of 2020, and some of the people who work in cricket I know are not necessarily fans of it as a game. But if you do have a long summer evening, apart from making me really cross, it means that if Surrey are playing Essex, for example, or Kent or Middlesex at the Oval, then just about every banker in the City of London will be there at five o'clock splashing out a large amount of money on, mm. on beer and champagne. And that's where they really make their income. They're not they're not making it from those days that I enjoy when there's about 50 people scattered around the ground watching the fourth day of a fifth day meandering to a, to a draw. So it's interesting. And it's, it's also really interesting the way that when there is a test match at the Oval, so when, it, when Australia come to town, essentially the Oval becomes the ECBs for five days in the same mm-hmm. way that South Africa or Russia becomes FIFAs for the duration of a World Cup. Yes. Yeah, yeah I mean, I... I- I've uh, watched uh, the, the, the T20 matches between Lancashire and Yorkshire yeah. at Old Trafford on occasions, and uh, it's it's packed to the gills, and uh, it, it is memorable for both what happens on and off the pitches during those matches. Yeah, I, one of my abiding memories of cricket was being at, uh, I can't remember what, it was the Oval, it was um, uh, the T20 semi-final day, Uh and Surrey were playing Lancashire. Lancashire's mascot was a who was a giraffe, Lanky the giraffe. You get it? <laughs> oh, very good. I, I, know, I know there were five uh, Surrey fans who I think were essentially either Chelsea or Millwall fans just having a day out, who stalked Lanky the giraffe around the whole pitch, and then eventually brought him down like a wildlife documentary. <laughs> <laughs> it's just you shouldn't lose. It's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. It was just. It was just, you could almost hear David Attenborough saying he fell back from the others. It was a terrible, terrible thing. Um, Stephen Drake has his question, and this is a question I'm really interested in. Stephen Drake says, last season Portsmouth offered fans a chance to sponsor a player for the season at £695 plus VAT. How much of this money is typically kept by the club as the arranger of the transaction? And how much does the player really keep if they're taxed on it as income or image rights? What interests me, Kieran, is back in the day, uh, most football clubs did it, but certainly at Palace, there was a kind of spreadsheet in the back of the programme where individuals or groups could sponsor the shirt, shirt, shorts and socks of a player. And me and five mates sponsored uh, Neil Redfern's socks. Uh, cost us about a five each a week. And they didn't have a font small enough to fit all our names in. But nevertheless, we felt part of it. Uh, for that five pound a week, but it never occurred to us to ask how much Neil Redfern was getting on that as image rights. Right, uh, the player will be getting zero. Oh, this this right. is this is money which is directed to the club, um, you know, and it's 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 a alternative to having a season ticket. I, I've I've done the same um, on 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 one or two occasions, and I think at the end of the season you get invited to uh, you know a, a meal at the club. Not if you only sponsor Neil Redford socks, you don't. <laughs> um, in fact, I, I sponsored the sh- I sponsored uh, somebody who's been on this show, Dean Hammond. Oh, uh, oh, so, you? so yeah, yeah, yeah. Way way back when, um, and then as soon as we got to the Premier League, the, you know, the prices went through the roof, and yeah, that was it. I was I was I was out of the running. Um, but yeah, it is it is a case of uh, clubs trying to use as many methods as possible of yeah first of all you, you do feel slightly closer to the club and the player if, if he's yeah, yeah. When, when your players yeah when, when yeah if your 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 players makes a tackle that that's that's my sock that did that you'll be, <laughs> you'll be saying to your mates in, in the in the Porson's arms after the match um and and so on so it, it, it is simply a way of uh, increasing the the much broader issues of of club finances given that so many clubs are losing money at present right. uh, apologies by the way for the slight hoarseness to my voice everybody uh, it's because i spent around about five hours last night shouting get in at intervals of 15 minutes or so uh, i've also got slightly tired eyes from looking at the league table over and over again uh, 
yeah, first world problems, Kieran. Andrew Sands has a question that's um, increasingly being asked in terms of sustainability. And Andrew Sands says, in a world where we're all being encouraged to live more sustainably, why do football clubs, mainly in the Premier League, feel the need to print the fixture and date, etc., on their squad's matchday shirts, meaning they can only ever be worn once? Assuming it applies to the whole 25 players per week over a season, that's a lot of shirts. How much would it cost the supporter, consumer, each season? And what happens to the shirts when they'd be worn? I, I have to say, Kieran, in my experience, this tends to happen more in cup games, doesn't it, than, than, mm. than league games. But it, it, it is a very good question. I mean, certainly at international level, every game that international teams play, those shirts can only ever be used once because they will have the date of the fixture and the flags of the two opposing teams on. Yes, as far as I'm aware, in the Premier League, I think many clubs wear special shirts for the Remembrance Weekend because they'll have poppies on, and those yes, are then sold yeah. to to raise money for um, the, the the relevant charities. And uh, if it's a special a special match, then you know, a cup final or so on, then then again, that's likely to be. Um, to have a special badge, but if not, um, it's they they only get a set number of shirts. Now, certainly in the lower leagues, because uh, I think we have spoken to, to to a few clubs, you you get X number of shirts, um, and and that's that's what's used. And then at the end of the season, what tends to happen is sometimes the clubs will have sort of a, the equivalent of a of a wrap, not a, a jumble sale. And they'll invite fans, and you can go and buy some of the the match worn kit. Um, quite often, they will then be passed down to the academy for the following season. So, you know, the academy end up wearing the the, the first team's kit for in training from the previous season, and so on. Um, but again, for for those specific matches, the player is entitled to a shirt. There will normally be two shirts for a player um, for a match because you know it might get muddy. You you. You might get a whack on the nose and bleed and want to change it. So there's normally two shirts, I think, for, for internationals, of which quite often the club might keep one for a special occasion um, of match. And we sometimes see those going up on eBay uh, or, or similar websites. Um, there are now specific websites. And, you know, it, again, it's a, it's a means of raising money for the club. And, of course, you know, the player may want a memento, you know, debut for England or you know, another home nation or whoever the, yeah. the international team is going to be. So um, they they aren't thrown away. Um, sometimes you end up with lots of them stuck in a drawer. Uh, but, you know, I think that's the case with, with many. You know, we, we could also say the same with regards to the much broader issue of football kits, given that so many clubs are now changing two or three sets of kits a season, whereas it used to be you know, one kit would last you two seasons or three seasons. And now I think we've only got Brentford yeah. who are committing to that. I think we could also say the same about your bedroom bedroom wardrobe, Kieran, which is crammed with more shirts than the National Football Museum. We've got, I believe, <laughs> it's a number of those issues for the Mariners. Why have you bought that kit? It's Stranraer's third kit. Who could not have Stranraer's third kit in their drawer that you can't close because it's full of kits? Uh, David Walton has our next question, and it's a, it's a subject, Kieran, that's rapidly moving into, I think, the the top five bees in bonnets of our listeners at the moment. Uh, and David Walton says, what would be the financial implications of moving the National League into the EFL, creating a League 3 and opening up promotion and relegation to the same standard as between League 1 and League 2, i.e. four teams up and four teams down? Well, we I think we are moving into a scenario of three up, three down yeah. fairly soon. Um, certainly when we had... Um, the, the, the guy from the uh, National League on the show, Mark, was was seemed to think that was good. And also some of the noises I'm hearing from people uh, in EFL clubs in League Two is that they say, okay, we've got a greater chance of going down, but we've also got a greater chance of coming yeah, back yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think they see the merits. I think the major financial implication would come back to distribution of monies because at present – the money that the EFL generates from both its own TV deal 
and solidarity payments from the Premier League, which actually exceed the value of the EFL's deal, is that 80% goes to the Championship, 12% goes to League One, and 8% goes to League Two. If we've is is the cake going to be much bigger if we have a Division Five or League Three or whatever we want to call it? The, the cake's not going to be much bigger, so therefore there's going to be some squabbles as to how it's going to be cut. Um, so I think that that could be an issue. Um, the Premier League also gives those clubs that have uh, academies money if they're in the EFL. Would that extend to a League Three setup? You know that that would have to be up for debate. Um, but apart from that, I think people now see the National League as. Uh, as something really exciting. I mean, any, anybody who watched the Wrexham versus Notts County oh, yeah, match, yeah, yeah th- that was that was pure theatre. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You, you can ma- imagine Reynolds and McElhenney. They, they said, "Well, we don't have to do any editing here." You know, the, the, yeah, the, the the script writes itself. Um, so, so there, it's a it's a fantastic league. Um, it, it's it's new grounds to visit if if you're a ground hopper, and, some, and at least one person in this conversation is, um, and. It's uh, it, it is a meritocracy as well because uh, I, th- I think you know to to let the top two go up from the national league and then have a playoff for the third and potentially to expand that to four up in four down that there is we're, we're certainly not seeing a dilution of of talent and that used to be the main issue you, you and I are both old enough to to remember when you know either the, the the winner of the northern prem or the southern league would have to be go to a vote with the bottom team in yeah. division 4 and it would be old men with cigars doing funny handshakes and inevitably the side never got kicked out of league 4 unless it was very very rare and and the argument put forward at the time would be that the quality of the teams coming up simply wouldn't match well uh, the, the the national league is containing many clubs who are full-time professionals. Um, They are now attracting players from League One and League Two because many of the clubs in the National League have wealthy backers. Uh, Now, there's a a financial sustainability issue, separate discussion to be had there, but uh, we've we're not getting straight coming up and coming down again. So I think that's indicative of the quality of the product in the National League. Well, you've got, I mean, Ben Foster's in goal for Wrexham, isn't he? It, yeah, he, he uh, saved saved a penalty, yeah, didn't he, in the, in the it, 95th minute? Exactly. Uh, it, it'd be interesting, Kieran, to see. I mean, it looks like Wrexham will take that one automatic spot uh, for promotion back into the league, and I don't think anybody would begrudge them. But it'd be interesting to see what happens to League Two, whether League Two gets the same publicity that the National League has got mm. from having Wrexham there. I also suspect, Kieran, that your comment about funny handshakes might not make the final edit, because I'd be amazed if producer guy wasn't involved in some kind of secret society, wouldn't you? You'd, you'd guess. Probably the Illuminati at best, but he's, he's got to be a mason at least, hasn't he? I don't see how... I really don't see how we'd have got a football finance pod up and running in the first place if he wasn't involved with some sort of secret society. <laughs> it has got to be some reason for our baffling success. This episode of The Price of Football is brought to you by Manscaped. Everyone is aware by now that nose hairs are a major turn-off. That's why Manscaped have upgraded to their brand new Weed Whacker 2.0 nose and hair trimmer. With improved blades and motor, you can feel the power of nasty nose hair annihilation in the palm of your hands. And the improved Weed Whacker can now be found in their performance package 4.0 for no additional cost. Take a look at manscaped.com and use the code PRICEOFOOTBALL for 20% off and free shipping. Take a look at manscaped.com and use the code PRICEOFOOTBALL for 20% off and free shipping. The new Weed Whacker 2.0 uses a powerful 7,000 RPM motor with an improved steel blade system that upgrades the cutting performance from their first generation to better whack your weeds. It also comes with skin-safe technology, which helps reduce nicks, snags, and tugs. It's cordless, rechargeable, 
and has a battery with up to 45 minutes of runtime. Can you imagine 45 minutes on your nostrils? So get 20% off and free shipping with the code Price of Football, all in big letters, Price of Football at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at Manscaped.com and use that code Price of Football. I'm Steve Lamarck and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight Stuart Dredge on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode we discuss the very latest goings on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Tom Thorpe has our next question. Uh, And I'm slightly confused by the first sentence, Kieran, because Tom says, (laughs) I grew up as a Gillingham fan. Now, I'm hoping that doesn't imply that Tom is no longer a Gillingham fan because, as we all know, neither of us approve of changing teams midstream, Kieran, Mm -hmm. although I believe Mm -hmm. Brighton are about the 17th club you've supported uh, various times in your childhood. Uh, Tom says, I grew up a Gillingham fan, and I didn't know this, and it's a really, which makes it a really interesting question. Back when I was a child, the club raised funds from the fans for a promised new Brian Moore stand to replace the old terrace stand there. Brian Moore, of course, being the uh, wonderful LWT football commentator back in the 60s and 70s, who was a Gillingham director, I believe, or chairman at the time, I don't know. Uh, since then, however, says Tom, they've had a temporary stand for, I believe, more than 20 years. It looks awful from behind, as it's mainly built from scaffolding. I was wondering why there isn't some kind of rule against how long you can have a temporary stand up for, and if there isn't, why do you think more clubs haven't taken advantage of it long term, as the seats sell for the same price? Now, I imagine it's a very cheap option. Yes, um, I don't know. I've got half man, half biscuit coming. So, so, yes, same here. Google, um, Google it, everybody. Yes, um, I think the reason why Gillingham have not converted the temporary stand into something more, uh, more permanent, is that the club was just about breaking even. Um, the old owner, Paul Scally. Uh, I think uh, uh, the politest thing I can say about him is that he ran a very, very tight ship. <laughs> um, the the impolite things I can say about him um, can't can't be said on this podcast, but I'll, I'll let you know at the end of it. Yeah. Um, but they've now got new American owners, so we've now got Brad Gallenson in as the new owner of Chilling, as part of sort of the American new wave of, of owners who are buying into uh, lower league clubs because they feel that they can you know, project them and, and promote them. Um, so as far as the, the the maximum amount of time that we can have a temporary stand, that comes down to local regulations. There will have been a contract or there will have been approval from the council as to how long we're entitled to have this. Um, why do more clubs not do it is that, that they most clubs – want to offer facilities to attract people to come to matches and some sort of glorified Lego construction um, doesn't really sit that bill on on a long-term basis. As, as somebody that uh, you know, used to watch football at uh, Withdean, which was mainly Lego in nature, it was it was a pretty horrendous experience. You know, an uncovered stand um, with very, very rickety seats open to to all that uh, the the weather could throw at it. it it was you were there through gritted teeth you were there through loyalty and i think for those for clubs like gillingham that don't sell out every week um you've got to persuade people to come to the matches we, it is 2023 yeah. and uh, some clubs uh, still think it's 50 years ago in terms of what they offer fans and and, and then they wonder why perhaps they're not selling out yeah, the with Dean was terrible, Kieran. So aren't you glad you had somebody like me who just for the sheer love of football campaigned incessantly to get you back to Brighton where you yeah. belong? Uh, I did one gig reluctantly 
and is still upset that he didn't get paid for it. Um, <laughs> our next question comes from Christopher Segerhelm. And again, I will make the usual apology if I've uh, mangled your name, Christopher. Uh, Christopher says, I just can't get my head around what's going on at Barcelona from a financial perspective. We could we could leave it there, Kieran. We couldn't, yes. <laughs> uh, Christopher says, from a layman's point of view, and I, I like this analogy, from a layman's point of view, it sure looks like some sort of attempt to, like Marty McFly in Back to the Future, accelerate ad absurdam in the hope of getting back in time to set things right. I love, I love the idea of the Barcelona chairman getting into the <laughs> car exam if we can get. Uh, I know that we've probably not seen all of the shady business going on in Catalonia, but can one say anything about what the end result may be and potential consequences are there any relatable examples in english football or any worst case scenarios from the history of sports i'm not entirely sure kieran if we've got time to answer that question but i i think it's very difficult to predict what will happen except mainly nothing will happen well, certainly in terms of punishment for Barcelona, um, nothing will happen financially unless La Liga decide to sanction them. Um, the economic levers or levers that Barcelona have pulled over the course of the, the last 12 months, yep, I've said these are corporate payday loans. Yeah. It's it's short-term gain for long-term pay. Now, it's, it's, it's reasonably well known that I do not drink alcohol, but from what I understand, it's similar to what the the experience of somebody having a hangover, i.e., you uh, you enjoy yourself for a few hours and you regret it. You regret it for a considerably longer period, um, and that considerably longer period, as far as Barcelona is concerned, we we could be talking uh, even ten, tens of years because they have sold some of their their rights to. Um, TV. They've sold some of their rights to uh, sort of the the intellectual property of the club going forwards in order to get cash now, which they can then go and splurge on um, poorly researched signings who <laughs> haven't necessarily fitted into the club's philosophy particularly well. Um, in terms of are there examples in English football? Um, I give you Leeds United and Peter Ridsdale. Uh-huh. Because uh, yeah, okay. if yeah, if, if we go back to you know, you know when uh, David O'Leary was the manager and had a twinkle in his eye, and and Leeds were playing some damn good football, yeah, um, yeah. they they were doing it on tick. And um, when when they didn't qualify for the Champions League one year, um, I think they ended up borrowing against future gate receipts and, and so on. And I think so, yeah, somewhere in the region of £60 million, when, I know this sounds glib, when £60 million was a lot of money, yeah, yeah. we're talking 20 years ago. Um, and, and Leeds meant that that left them, that they were, they were not able to compete um, as they would have liked. Yeah, Le- Leeds has been the biggest club in the championship. They were there for 16 years. They were probably the biggest club for, for you know, 12 of those years at least. I know that West Ham and Newcastle popped down on, on occasions during that period, but even so, you know, Leeds was always seen as the, the, the big draw in the championship. And people say, well, why wasn't that turned into promotion earlier? It was the hangover from, from what had happened earlier on. My, my concern at present is that West Bromwich Albion are going down a similar route. Yeah. We've got all of the complications in terms of the, the loans to the owner, the fact that they've borrowed £20 million from MSD Holdings and they're paying interest at 14.75%. Yeah, that's that's almost credit card rates on, on corporate lending. And, and it is uh, it is very disturbing because West Brom's parachute payments cease at the 30th of June. So that it, those interest costs and those repayments have to come out of their day-to-day uh, operational uh, revenues, and that's going to make it really tough um, in 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 the baggies area. <laughs> was that all building up to that last comment? No, was- no, no. <laughs> I, 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 I had a mental block, but I couldn't remember the Hawthorns. Oh, okay, right. Oh, oh, okay. I was waiting for you to say unexpected item in the baggies area, but anyway. <laughs> yes. Um, I like the way you say West Ham and Newcastle pop down to the championship as well, just just to see what's happening there for a season or so, just have a cup of tea and then pop back up to the Premier League again. Um, and some hangovers, Kieran, you'll never know this, but some hangovers are worth more than others, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, uh, sure. I, I can tell you that the uh, 
unexpected th- third win in a row in the Premier League uh, is a hangover that I was perfectly happy to cope with this morning, to be perfectly honest. Although it's a terribly annoying thing where you realise you've been drinking for quite a long time and it's still an hour before match of the day's on and you won't be the first game. Um, <laughs> Craig Arnold has a question, Kieran, that you like because it's about uh, his own club, but it also veers off in a different direction. So Craig Arnold said, my question is to do with my club, Swindon, who, when it comes to recruitment, seem to be looking at a more sustainable model, similar to the muddy ball slash analytical approach of signing young discarded players, developing them and then selling them on for profit. This approach seems to have divided the Swindon Town fan base somewhat, however, with some saying it's the same approach that worked out well for Brentford, with others pointing out that Brentford only Matthew Benham actually bought his way into the Premiership. So my question is, how much money have Brentford made from their recruitment strategy and how much did Matthew Benham invest into the club out of his own pocket to get them into the Premier League? Right. I mean, uh, this is an interesting one, Craig. Matthew Benham is uh, the owner of a company called Smart Odds. And in my view, Brentford have been promoted by being smarter rather than bigger than the other clubs in the Championship. If we take a look at their trading model when they were in the championship, they were there for about five or six seasons. Over that period, they generated £140 million worth of profit from buying and selling players. And that was their their ability to spot talent. And, and those players have got it. You think about Ollie Watkins, you know, yeah. how good he's been for Villa. They, they've got decent fees. Um, so £140 million worth of profits, that compares during the same period to just £19 million worth of revenue from ticket sales. So for every £1 of ticket sales, they've generated £7 of profit from the transfer market. And it's it's a case of algorithms. It's a case of understanding data. there's, There's an awful lot of data out there in respect of the football model. What very few people are able to do is to actually convert that into a scenario where you can spot the talent which will fit in with your club. You know, we, we've seen historically over the past five or six years, Everton, new owner comes in, spent a lot of money, club hasn't progressed on the pitch. We've got Todd Bowley and James Corden, the, uh, the, <laughs> the, the preceding and current director of football at Stamford Bridge. Um <laughs> They've not exactly uh, done wonders either uh, in either player recruitment or manager recommendations. So that's that's the issue. So I, I can understand um, some Swindon fans being uh, a bit cautious, but the alternative is to sign players on a hunch. Yeah. And, you know, hunches don't always work either. Uh, so... Uh, you know, a, a more scientific approach does have some benefits, but you've you've got to um, a have the data and smart odds do. Uh, you know, Matthew Benham used to work for Tony Bloom, who's who's the Brighton owner, and yeah. I think it's you know, fairly well known that that that's the model that we use. Uh, and those two, uh, they, they they don't talk these days. Um, and and then having the the people who can interpret the data, you know, and, and, and people say to me, quite a few people say, well, could could I, could I use your spreadsheet? How long did it take you to make? And I said, well, my spreadsheet's probably eight years worth of work. I said, well, you're giving it away to me for nothing. I said, well, yeah, because it it's it, it probably means nothing to anybody apart from me. You know, if somebody if somebody gives me a piano, it doesn't make me a piano player. If if somebody gives me data, it doesn't mean that I'm a data analyst unless I understand how the numbers work. Um so I think the issue at Swindon is do you have the people at the club? And yeah, I don't know the answer to this. You know, I'm, I'm we we've got friends at Swindon. Um I'm sure they'll be able to fill us in on this. Um but do you have the people who can take use of that data and make it add value to your present model. It, it's easier, though, Kieran, to buy players on a hunch when you're a billionaire, and it doesn't matter mm. if that hunch pays off, does it? It's it's when you're looking at clubs further down the food chain who can't afford to do that. But it, it does amaze me sometimes that more clubs don't take a sort of data-based approach to signing. I mean, if, if you look, and I hate to say this, you look at Brighton yesterday, 
a lot of, of us are immersed in football. You look at Brighton's team sheet and you go, well, where do these people come from? Then your 19-year-old mm. Paraguayan lad scores a wonder goal and you, you have to say to yourself, well, how did Chelsea not know about him? And the answer is that they're too busy looking for players that will satisfy their fans. And yes. satisfying their fans doesn't involve signing a 19-year-old from Paraguay for however much. But however he works out, my guess is that you will sell that lad for more than you bought him for. Yes, yeah, and that's the that's the only way because the financial disparity in the Premier League has grown. And I know people say with it, there's a big gap between the Premier League and the Championship, and and that is a distribution issue. But it's just that you and I, we both know at the start of the season, uh, you know, if you know, we, we we're doing cartwheels, we're seventh. Yeah, and don't rub it in. Che- we know. Yeah, che- Chelsea fans are, you know, they're all doom and gloom and you're about to overtake them to make them the sixth best team in, in London, let alone the Premier League. You know, I, and I, I, so if if that happens, Kieran, I've got a lot of friends who are Chelsea fans, but if if we should overtake Chelsea somehow and end up ahead of them, oh, the first thing I would do is march into talk sports offices and demand to be on the Andy Jacobs show. For, for two whole hours because it really will, as we discussed, upset him very much. Our penultimate question, Kieran, comes from Declan Rice. Uh, very helpully in brackets, it adds the words, not that one, basically. Which <laughs> I'm really disappointed, actually. Well, I also, I like to think that, that maybe Declan Rice is underestimating us here, Kieran. That he thinks that we'll be fooled by the fact that he is actually that Declan Rice, but we will be thrown off the trail simply by him putting not that one in brackets. So for the, <laughs> for the moment, I'm going to carry on with the assumption that it is that Declan Rice. Uh, Declan Rice says, as a Man United fan, oh, no, it's not that Declan Rice, then, is it? Um, as a Man United fan, I was wondering, this is a really interesting concept, Kieran. As a Man United fan, says Declan, I was wondering whether it would be possible for a potential new owner to buy the debt of Man United if the Glazers were unwilling to sell the club and then call that debt in. I don't know all the ins and outs of finance, work to my world, but I have heard of debt being brought. I've recently read stories of hostile takeovers from Man United and wanted to know, could this be an option to get rid of the current owners if they decide not to sell willingly? I love these types of questions. <laughs> <laughs> a, do, do you, I, I have to point out, Kieran, when I read out this type of question, I don't know whether it's genius or lunacy. <laughs> I wait for you to tell me, and I can tell by the sound of your voice, which I predict the answer is. <laughs> Do you think this could actually be that Declan Rice and it's a coded message <laughs> to Old Trafford of come and get me and we could be breaking the story live on the podcast? Yeah. Kieran, could you um, – that would be great, wouldn't it? Uh, I wonder if Declan Rice is a Freemason. Uh, I could explain <laughs> it. Would you Before you answer the question, Kieran, would you explain to me at least what the concept of a hostile takeover – actually is it's a phrase i i hear and read about quite often and i assume it's it's a, a takeover against the wishes of current owners but i've never quite understood why it is that current owners can be brought out against their wishes well um i think you have to separate on some occasions the board of directors from shareholders ah, okay. because if if you are looking at a listed company um, which is traded on the stock exchange. It will have millions and millions of shareholders, many of whom are going to be um, hedge funds, pension funds, insurance funds, and so on. And they've got no emotional attachment to the company. So somebody comes in, and nor- normally the first thing you do is you you get in contact with the board of directors and say, look, we're interested in buying the company we're thinking of paying this, would you be willing to recommend this to shareholders? Now, if the if the board of directors say, okay, yeah, we've, we have a fiduciary duty to act in the best interest of shareholders, we think it is a good offer and therefore we, we're going to recommend the deal. They might turn around and say, we're not comfortable about this either. We don't think the price is right. We don't think the the culture of the new owners is right compared to sort of the history and the heritage of the company involved and so on. So if that is the case, these potential owners can go and say, well, well you know, sod you, we're going to make an announcement that we're going to try to buy the company. And th- th- we, we saw this with uh, Twitter 
and Elon Musk yeah. that he tried to buy the company and Twitter said, well, we don't particularly want to be run by Elon Musk. You know, we, we don't necessarily agree with all of, of his philosophy in life. And, and if you look what he's done, you know, he's got rid of you know, 75% of the staff yeah, yeah. In, in six months. So you can understand why they might feel they've got a protection and a duty of care towards the people that work there. Um, so, so that's what we mean by a hostile takeover. It's where the the relationship between the board of directors and the potential owners is such that uh, they're probably not going to be kept on is is another issue, right. um, and 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 therefore uh, they won't be necessarily opening up the books, you know, inviting them round for tea and so on. Um, so so that's that's the position which would which would be the case. Now, in the case of Manchester United, the Glazer family have originally said that we are exploring opportunities to potentially reduce our holding within the club. So I think they're they're looking to walk away from the club if it's going to be a full sale although you know the stories are still doing the rounds that uh, I think it's it's Avram and Joel want to have 51% of the votes and yeah. you know the other the other four glazers can sell their shares and we we could still end up with with glazer control of, of the club so so that's that's where we are in terms of sort of the concept of a hostile takeover in the case of manchester united manchester united has 650 million dollars worth of loans and in addition manchester united has a i think it's now a 200 million pound overdraft facility doesn't mean that it's just like a normal overdraft facility doesn't mean that you're 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 200 million pounds overdrawn it's just that that's what you can borrow um if uh, if you so need um, and the repayment dates for those loans, there's one which expires in 2027 and one which expires in 2029. And Manchester United fans might be saying, well, hold on, you know, you know, four years' time, you know, their first one's reg- is due for repayment. But what will happen as you get close to that date, you just kick it down the road. You just reschedule the repayment dates is, is the normal approach. Could Could a hostile bidder who has been rejected by the Glazer family, could they say, well, you know, toys out of pram, you won't let us buy the company. What we're going to do is we're going to go to your lenders and buy what's known as the loan note. So loan note right. is where Manchester United issues IOUs to the market. Yes, they could, but because there are specific dates for repayment, um, if you tried to recall the loan early, then you'd be in breach of contract. And therefore, you're unlikely to get very far. Um, secondly, whilst the Glazers would be um, yeah, using their lawyers to delay any progress on that, they'll also simply be going to other banks and say, look, you know, we've, we've got an awkward situation here. Would you like to take over our lending facility? And I, I can guarantee that there are a long list of banks who'd be more than happy to lend money to the Glazers. Right. So Declan's question then is not beyond the realms of fantasy then? It's it's not. I just don't think that a new potential owner could use this as a means of leverage right. to try to uh, get the get the glazers out because you do have a, a, a you know, it's it's a bit like if if uh, uh, yeah, if, my, if my building society said, uh, oh by the way, Kieran, uh, we don't like you very much. Yeah. Uh, I know you're up to date with all of your payments. We we want the mortgage repaid three years early. I go well, hold on. I've got a contract, you know, and and you know the contract has obligations on both parties. You will be in breach of contract if you recall that money early because I've I've maintained all of my side of the deal. Uh, could it work the other way around then, Kieran? Could could the Glazers actually see that as a way out, or you know, say owners of a, a, a fictional football club? Could they say ah, we, we've had enough? Would somebody like to buy our debt? Um, yes, they could. Um, they, they might be able to renegotiate it and, and, and sell it on to somebody else. But the existing lenders, they would say, well, if that is the case, it, it will be the equivalent of me repaying my mortgage early and therefore the following penalty clauses come right. into play. Right, okay. So it, it, it can, but it, it can also be costly from a financial perspective. Uh, our final question, Kieran, comes from Andrew Smith. Um, we mentioned earlier that 
uh, promotion and relegation to the National League uh, was a very high new entry into our top five uh, beefs, shall we say, from listeners. Um, I mean, no disrespect to Everton fans listening, but Everton are also one of those high new entries. Uh, there's a mild obsession developing with Everton's finances, I think, in the whole world of football outside that particular part of Stanley Park. And Andrew Smith says, can you explain the huge difference in transfer policy between my club, Leicester City, and Everton, please? Everton never seemed too far away when a Cody or a Tarkovsky becomes available, having seemingly already spent a fortune over the last couple of seasons. Meanwhile, in the East Midlands, we've signed no one, despite having qualified for Europe two seasons on the trot. The club has offered no public explanation for our grinding to a sudden halt like this, and everyone is assuming we need to comply with new FFP rules. How different are the finances of Leicester and Everton, and does FFP not apply in that part of the city of Liverpool? And even with the potential Premier League charges against Everton, Kieran, they they are a club that the rest of football are seemingly slightly bemused by. Yes, um, I like football bitterness, <laughs> and, <laughs> and there's certainly an element of, of it here. There is, um, there is, yeah. Uh, Andrew is absolutely right to say that uh, Leicester have qualified for Europe uh, on a regular basis. Um, and what we have seen at Leicester in in sort of, the, you know, certainly since they won the Premier League, which I still maintain is the, the, the greatest achievement um, in, in the Premier League era, um, what we have seen is a significant increase in their wage bill. And the problem is, is that, you don't make much money from Europe unless you get right to the final stages of either the Europa League or the Europa Conference. So you know, I, I was talking to uh, the board of, of somebody from a from a club that you know, could get into the Europa Conference recently. Brighton. And, uh, Is it Brighton? No, 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 uh-huh. no. Um, and I'm saying, okay, you know, what what's in it? And they say, well, look, we've done our sums, and uh, you know, we if if we break even, we'll do well because if we're going to be playing in the Europa Conference, we've got to plan for you know three potentially thirteen, fifteen Thursday games, yeah. and we can't do it with the size of the squad that we've got. So therefore, we need to spend as far as the transfer market is concerned. So that's that's something that we saw. With Leicester, I mean, you know, the Leicester's squad cost at the thirty-first of May, twenty twenty-two. The squad cost over four hundred million pounds, which for a non-big six club yeah. is huge. Um, and they spent sixty-seven million pounds that season, and then yeah, they didn't qualify for Europe, and and that's why we've seen cutbacks. Um, you know, Casper Schmeichel went. Some other players. Um, didn't sign extended contracts because the club didn't manage to to match the players' aspirations. And um, it, it only takes one season of not qualifying for Europe to say, well, we now don't need the size of that squad anymore. Yeah. So therefore, we're going to cut back in recruitment. And in respect of Everton, I mean, to be fair to Everton, you know, they, they had to sell Richarlison. They, they only re-spent a small proportion of that money. Um, they have subsequently sold Anthony Gordon, and some of the players that they have recruited have either been, um, you know, on loan or um, at relatively low fees. So, so that's that's the position um, that Everton find themselves on. And you know, w- with respect to Andrew's question, and I suspect the question was written before the charges were levelled at Everton. Yeah. Um, you know, th- the club is not immune from FFP because they're, they're now up before the beak. Yeah, the way our waiting list for questions is going, it could have been written while Dixie Dean was playing for Everton, to be perfectly honest. Yes. <laughs> um, Leicester have potentially bigger problems, aren't they? Yeah, there's, there's no doubt that they're in trouble at the bottom of the table. Um, and as Gary Lineker gloomingly pointed out on Match of the Day on Saturday night, I think there's seven or eight of their big players are, are out of contract in mm. the summer, and they won't be signing new contracts if they're relegated, will they? They, they won't, and also they were giving the impression that half of their minds were already yes. somewhere else, yeah. which yeah, which yeah. is which was disappointing. Um, 
and, and I, you know, I, I would not besmirch uh, professionals, but uh, yeah, I, I was you know, when I look at that Leicester squad, I think they shouldn't be where they are. Yeah. But uh, yeah, but you know, that's 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 a separate issue. Um, so yeah, they they are in a tricky position with regards to the owners. You know, the owners have, have stopped putting money in now. You know, that they are still looking to expand um, their training facilities. They're still. I was about to go and say to expand Filbert Street, which shows how old I am. <laughs> uh, but but to, to to expand the uh, the, the 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 new ground as well. Um, but how they're going to fund that is a separate issue. Although I, I do have to ask, Kieran, and I, this is a conversation Palace fans had uh, two seasons ago. If a club is in danger of relegation, and they do have seven or eight of their biggest players, their biggest earners coming up to be out of contract is that not actually a better scenario than having those players still in contract and wanting to leave anyway um well you, you get fees for them oh, you know, okay. if, if, if they're good they will be picked up elsewhere right yeah we, we, we saw that with Burnley when they were relegated yeah. you know yeah, McNeil yeah. went to Everton and some of the other players went elsewhere um and then you know Burnley have recruited superbly you know what what, what Vincent company has done is absolutely amazing um, but uh, you're better off getting fees for them than letting them go on a Bosman. Right. Uh, if you would like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod, that's very kind of you, then please go to patreon.com slash priceoffootball. And if you have a question you'd like answered on the show about Dixie Dean or any other player of the current football world, email us at questions at priceoffootball.com. And in the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Well, as always, thank you so much for your support for the show. Thanks for engaging with us, uh, keeping us uh, on our toes. Um, And even sort of the obscure things, the the, the number of people who contacted me on Saturday afternoon to say that Chester City had changed their own kit because one of their own players was colourblind was was quite touching. Yeah, that was a brilliant story. I was really applauded all round for that. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, so you know that that's great, and um, we uh, we we enjoy reading your questions, um, even, even though some of them make reference to guineas and uh, <laughs> things like this. Uh, we, we will, we will, but no question has ever thrown away. Okay? That's, that's that's true. Pretty, um, uh, there's, there's other. There's another way of supporting the show, and that's to go onto your app and to give us a review. It helps us in the charts. It helps us with a bit of credibility when we're trying to book guests. And uh, the, the the guest we had from Caledonian Braves was was absolutely yeah, brilliant very good. on Friday. Yeah. Um, it, it doesn't matter what you say in the uh, in the review. You could even say you would rather it hosted by Declan Rice, but not that one, and James Corden. And I wouldn't care. <laughs> Uh, we're talking of guests, Kieran. We have some really interesting guests coming up. We've got the head of Scottish football. We mm. have uh, somebody from the Chelsea Pitch Club. We have yes. a novelist uh, who's written a brilliant book about football. I really do hope. I'm, I'm securing the knowledge James Corden won't be listening to this because he's not in it. Uh, but I, <laughs> I really hope for many reasons that it is true that the reason Chelsea got Frank Lampard back in was because of his advice. I just love that concept. Uh, uh, sorry. Well, it's, it's good to end with a chuckle, Kieran, isn't it? Yes, it yeah. is. Bye. Yes, it's, it's amazing when we both win, isn't it? Isn't it just? Bye, everybody. Bye. The football. I'm for the